might be taking to help lessen that pain, except when I stand in the pulpit to preach God's word. So, I had a rough night last night, therefore strap in, we're going to be here a while, okay? This is what I'm trying to say. All right, let's go to Romans chapter 7. We are taking a journey through the book of Romans on the topic of grip by grace. And my goal in this series is to help you understand the concept of God's grace and what it means to live under God's grace and, and how that is so different than living under the law, as Paul describes the law. And we're going to unpack that today. And so we are in chapter 7 of uh, Romans, and we are going to finish... Uh, chapter 7 and 8, um, right before Easter, and at Easter, we're going to start a new series. We're going to take a break from Romans for a little while, and I'm going to do a brand new series starting on Easter. But um, we're going to talk about what makes for a bad marriage, what makes for a bad marriage. So last week, we talked about what it means to be free from the enslavement of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was not a follower of Jesus, when, you know, especially when I was in my teens... And it was just all about Greg. It was about, all about what I wanted to do and when I wanted to do it and how I wanted to do it and got into all kinds of difficulties. And, you know, I found out that, you know, stealing's not a good thing because it gets you a free trip to the police department, uh, you know, things like that. So, you know, we are enslaved to sin because, as Paul has pointed out, we are born in the world with a sin nature. It's just what we do. It's just our nature. It's just, it's just comfortable to us. And, and it doesn't seem uncomfortable unless somebody makes it that way, like a trip to the police department. But we can relate to Paul, though, when he, he comes to chapter 7 and the latter verses of this chapter. We're going to look at the first 13 verses today and the rest of it next week. He says, you know what? I find myself, I've, I've come, become a follower of Jesus. Remember his Damascus Road experience with Christ. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And Paul has this struggle going on inside of him. He says, you know... Uh, I used to be enslaved to sin, but now I'm in Christ. I'm free from sin. I've died to all that. I was buried with Christ, resurrected with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. But I find that there's still a struggle inside of me that wants to sin. Right? I, I want to do what's right, but I find myself not doing the things I want to do, and I find myself doing the things I know I shouldn't be doing. And so Paul talks about this inner struggle, this inner battle that he was engaging in on a day-by-day -day basis, just like if we're honest with each other, uh, we go through the same thing, right? We find ourselves, even though we are new creations in Christ, the old's gone, the new has come, that there's a battle that goes on inside of us because, as we've talked about, we have three enemies. We have Satan, the flesh, and the world, and there's this internal turmoil that we find ourselves doing the things we really don't want to do, and we're not having much victory, we're not having much freedom in that area of life, and over time, it leads to a lot of guilt, it leads to a lot of shame, it leads to a lot of condemnation, um, and so it's, it's, it's a struggle that we deal with on a daily basis, and so Paul's going to start unpacking in chapter 7 why this battle is taking place, and how we can move uh, from being... Um, victimized by this battle to being victorious, right? So we're just going to lay the groundwork today as it relates to the law, and I'm going to further define the law in a moment, but um, God wants us to help, help us walk in victory in these areas of life that we find ourselves constantly struggling in, and then he's going to, in chapter 8, give us the power source behind all of this, 
which is the Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. You can live one of two ways. You can live either walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. If you learn how to walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So he's going to deal a lot with the flesh here in chapter 7. And he's going to say, now, here's how you appropriate the Holy Spirit in your life that will enable you to walk in the spirit and thus not fulfill the desires of the flesh, this war, this battle that is going on inside of you. And so he's really answering the question in these first 13 verses of chapter 7 to what was back in chapter 6 and beginning in verse 14, he says, for sin shall not be your master, right? Why, why should sin not be my master? Because I'm in Jesus. You know, I've died to all of that because you are not under the law, but you are under what? Grace. What then shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? By no means. Now, he gave an analogy in answering that question in chapter 6 by using a, a slave, not somebody who was enslaved like during the Civil War, but in the Roman Empire, if you were poor, you couldn't provide for your family, you could seek out someone who's wealthy, and you would attach yourself to them, and you would say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work for you, you can be my master, I will follow you as long as you provide for me and provide for my family. It was a voluntary thing, and so he uses that as like, you know, when you're free in Christ... I don't do the things that I do for Jesus because I have to. I do them because I want to. He's changed my desires and my want to over time. And so now Paul's going to use another analogy. He's going to use that of marriage. Um, so let me ask you a question. Is marriage a good experience or a bad experience? Good? Well, that might be depending upon who you're married to. Could be good, could be bad. Uh, here's one of the things I know. The determining factor as to whether or not your marriage is good or bad is based on two people. The same two people who squared off face to face on the day of your wedding ceremony and made vows to one another, you're the culprits. As to whether or not you have a good marriage or a bad marriage, you really can't blame anybody else. And so marriage can be awesome, it can be awful. It all depends on who you are and who you are married to. So he's basically saying with regards to the family, when you got married, you were obligated and you pledged your life to stay with that person until death do you part. And so Paul's going to use an analogy of marriage here and say, you know what? You used to be married to the law. And I'll talk about what, what that means. But now you're married to Christ. You're married to grace. And the only way you can get out of marriage, he says, is to the law, is you have to die to that. You know, in physical marriage, if, if I die, my wife is not obligated to not remarry, right? She, she has full capability of, now she's never going to replace me because I'm perfect. But other than that, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but she, she's no longer obligated to stay single, right? She, she has, by the, by the law, by even God's law, she can remarry. And so this is the analogy Paul's going to use when it comes to that of being married to the law and living under the law as opposed to being married to Christ and living under grace because those are two separate families and there are two very distinct ways to live. And what happens is, we get married to Christ. We were married to the law before we got saved. We get married to Christ 
and we're saved, and we've died to the law, but oftentimes we keep dragging the law with us. So we're trying to live in a marriage of grace and law at the same time, and that makes for a very bad marriage, a very bad marriage. And so what do we mean by living under the, under the law? Living under the law, and this is on your outline, means that you're trying to keep r- the rules of God, the laws of God, his rules, in order to gain acceptance in God's sight. In other words, the only way I can feel acceptable to God, the only way I can feel valuable to him or worthy of his love is that I keep all of his rules and his commands and his laws. And if I can do all that perfectly, then I believe that God will accept me into his presence, into heaven, on the basis of what I can do. All right, so now it's all up to me. And it's my ability to be perfect. And um, this is where, if you're married to that, it's the center of your life. It's where you establish your identity. It's where you establish your self-worth. And how you come to know when you're good enough or valuable enough or worthy enough is by how well you do in keeping God's laws. So that's what it means to live under God's, God's laws. To live under grace is just the opposite. It means that I'm resting in the finished work of Jesus, and that's what makes me accept, acceptable to God. That my worth, my value, is not in my ability to keep God's rules. My worth and my value is in Christ. God sees me worth, worthy. He sees me valuable, and that's why he sent Jesus into the world, because God wants to have this, this relationship. Now, So my standing with God is this. We've talked about this in in earlier chapters. The minute you gave your life to Christ, God said you were justified in his sight. That's a a legal legal term. It's just as if you've never sinned. God, in his graciousness, forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future, because everything for you was in the future, in the past, when Jesus died on the cross, because you, you haven't even been born yet. And so... He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, which means when Jesus looks at you, when God looks at you, he sees not your sin. He sees Christ. He sees you justified. You're no longer a sinner. You've now become a saint of God, set apart by God. You've become justified in his eyes. God gave you the faith to make a faith decision and a faith walk. All of this is all-encompassing in God's grace. God didn't do it because I earned it. I simply am resting in what Jesus has already done on my behalf. And so, you know, when I first, you know, heard that I had cancer and had, had to make that announcement, um, there were some people who were like, wow, I, uh, I wonder what Greg did to tick God off to make him give him cancer. And so that's like Job's friends, right? You know, Job loses everything and he's... He's lost everything, and he's in this vast illness, and he's got sackcloth and ashes on him, and his blessed friends come, and they sit with him for a while and don't say a word, which was great. Then they start speaking, and basically that's what they said to Job. It's like, Job, what did you do to tick off God that he would do this to you? And, and so uh, now, if I was a person living under law, I would wonder the same thing, right? What did I do to make God so angry with me that he would inflict upon me such a disease? But when you're under grace, 
My worth, my value, to my, my acceptability to my heavenly Father has not changed one iota because it's not based in me. It's based in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's a whole different way to live. So I want to talk about the reason we are free from the law, the results of it, and what is the purpose of the law. And this message is really to set up for next week, which really we're going to get to the nuts and bolts on how you stand toe-to-toe with your three enemies, Satan, the flesh, and the world, and God equips you to walk in the victory that he's laid before you in Jesus Christ. So let's look in chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Right, so what releases her? The death of her husband. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, now that's a different story, right? She is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. And so I want you to know that Paul here, his thoughts, uh, he's not... He's not trying to give you a teaching on adultery and divorce. He's trying to simply make an application as to the Christian's relationship to the law. All right, so don't read into there what what Paul is not saying. And so here's what he says. For me, this is how I just break it down. When you live under the law, you're living in a bad marriage. You're just living in a bad marriage. Who do we tend to drop the hammer on in marriage? Our spouse, right? So we we tend to maybe be a little harsh, a little critical towards one another. And and so the Bible says that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And who's your closest neighbor? Your spouse, right? If you're married, that is your closest neighbor, is your spouse. (laughs) So your spouse... This relationship that we are in covenant with one another is supposed to be a relationship that is built upon love and grace and acceptance and value and all of those things. That's what grace brings into a relationship. But what does law bring into a relationship? Law brings in harshness, chaos, um, all kinds of entitlement. It's a whole different environment And so when you are under a law-based relationship, that environment consists of two categories. You're either perfect or you fail, right? Perfection or failure. There's no in-between. There's no grace. You're either perfect or you have failed. So the law comes along and says, well, if you're going to be acceptable to God, you must be perfect. But now when the law stands up against you, you are a failure. You've not kept the law. You're not perfect. Therefore, you are not worthy. You are not valuable. You are not acceptable to the very God who has created you. So let's put this in the context of marriage because this gets you on a treadmill of performance and it's always about what you didn't do and not what you did do or how far you have fallen short and not the progress that you've made. So let's say, for example, you grew up in a home where you had a law-based dad because usually opposites track, a law-based dad and a grace-based mother. And it might be reversed. You could have a law-based mother, grace-based dad. I'm going to pick on the fathers today. 
So what is a law-driven father like? Well, he's pretty non-relational. He's punitive, um, high control, threatens a lot, punishes a lot, a lot of rules. It's all about keeping the rules. And even if you keep the rules, it's never enough. It's never good enough. It's never perfect enough. And so you live on eggshells in a law-based driven home with a father who's driven by that. So for example, uh, I know a father who had a young man in um, Canal Winchester High School and his father always watched his son. His son was the quarterback for the football team. And it didn't matter if his son like, made 8 out of 10 passes for 150 yards. All right, Dad would say, yeah, well, you should have made 10 out of 10 for 200 yards. Right? It was never enough. There was no praise. There was no uh, affirmation. It was just all, you're, you're either perfect or you failed. There's no in-between. And so everything was just driven by this, you know, you never do enough. And now you have a mother, though. She is grace-based. Like, she's tender. She's loving. She's caring. uh, She's forgiving. And what happens in this kind of home where you have a law-based father and a grace-based mother, and you start having children, and then all of a sudden, you know, dad hammers the children with the law. Mom's trying to counteract that with grace, And over time, you have a divided house. And Jesus says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So over time, something has to give. And usually, um, as dad is dropping the hammer and there's only fear and chaos and that's never good enough, you never feel like you measure up and mom's trying to counterbalance all of that. When you have a father who has rules without relationship, that always leads to rebellion. And so mom's trying to counter it. More often than not, children grow up in that kind of household, end up rebelling. They're rebelling against everything dad stands for because there was no real love. There's no real compassion. It's just all follow the rules. You're either perfect or you're not. Then all of a sudden, let's say they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and they start learning about God as their father, as their heavenly father. They are children of God the Father. Now we tend to, having lived under law, drag the law into this grace relationship. And now when they think in terms of God as Father, they think of God in terms of their earthly father. And now they have PTSD because that's the way their earthly father was. And it's a struggle for them. To come to acceptance of God and living under his grace without thinking, oh, but God's just waiting to drop the hammer on me. I, I didn't get it right, and I didn't get it perfect, and, and, and I just, you know, I tried as hard as I could, but I just couldn't measure up. And so what's your enemy do? Satan. He hammers on you with guilt and shame and condemnation. You're no good. You're not worth anything. And he will use the words of your earthly father and echo them in the chambers of your mind. And it's like playing a tape recorder and you just feel bad about yourself. That is living under law. That's a bad marriage. Jesus came to give you a great marriage because Jesus came to enable you to live under grace. And grace is just the opposite. So you're married until you die, then you are released. You were married to the law, but who came and released you from the law? Jesus did. And Jesus came along and said, listen, 
Uh, I, I took care of your guilt. I, I, I have cleansed you of your shame. And I, I am not here to condemn you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to love you. And I know that, you know, at times you're going to try like Paul with all your might to do the right thing and you'd end up doing the right, wrong thing. But I'm telling you, I'm not coming down with a hammer on you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to give you my grace and love. Like a child who is learning to walk and they stumble and they skin their knees. What do you do as a parent? You don't beat them while they're down. You pick them up and you hug them and you love them and you get them moving again because you want them to learn how to walk in the grace and that's what God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. This is a marriage that is grace-based so that we're not walking around feeling condemned all the time. Because again, where there is rules without relationship, it's hard to have a relationship when you feel like somebody is condemning you and you're never measuring up and you're never doing it right and you're never doing it enough and you're never doing it good enough, it's hard, it's hard to have a relationship. So in your heart, you just begin to to rebel. And so when we don't learn how to live in this marriage of grace, and we'll talk about this next week, I'll just mention it today, this is what develops what is known and what Paul defines as a carnal Christian. And there are some very distinct characteristics of a carnal Christian, and I'll give those to you next week, but these are just people who just cannot move forward in their walk with God. And so here's Paul's point is that the law has no power over a dead man, right? He doesn't say the law died. He just said the law has no power over a dead man. For example, if somebody, uh, let's say they go to a bar, they get, you know, stone drunk, get in their car and drive 270 the wrong way, and they hit somebody head on, and the people in the car that he hit dies, and he dies, can the law do anything against him? Can the law put him in prison? Can the law, you know, bring him to court, slap him with a DUI? Absolutely not. Why? Because he's died. And so this is what Paul's point is that, listen, we, we are not in a bad marriage of law with our Heavenly Father. We are in an incredible marriage that is based upon the grace that is given to us through our, his son, Jesus Christ. So what is the result then of being free from this, this law? Well, look what he says in verse um, 3. It says, so then, if the marriage, she marries another, the man, still alive, she's called adulterous, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not adulterous, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who, has raised, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, that's, this is be the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. See, this is, this is the, he's just now explaining what he just explained by way of analogy using marriage. We've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he says, how did we get out of this relationship with the law? We died. How did we die? We died in Christ. Remember chapter six was all about when Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected to walk in newness of life. The Bible even goes on to say when Christ was seated in the heavenlies and from God's perspective, you've already been seated in the heavenlies with him. 
And so now what we're trying to learn how to do is to appropriate on earth what God has already established in the heavenlies. And so here's what he says. We have a new freedom. We have a new husband. Your husband is Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. Freedom from the law does not mean I'm free to do whatever I want, but I'm free to do what I ought to do out of love and gratitude, not out of fear and guilt and shame. Big difference. When I'm in a family of law, it's, it's, it's all fear-driven. It's all guilt-driven. It's all shame-driven. It's condemnation-driven. I'm just trying to appease you because I don't want you to come down on me. In a grace relationship, it's all about love. It's all about gratitude because I know that I'm valued by God. I know that I'm, uh, that, that I am identified with Christ and all that he accomplished on my behalf and on your behalf. It is measuring our spirituality not by a list of do's and don'ts, it's, it's, it's by an example of walking in the Spirit. And so God has given us this new freedom, and we unpacked some of those new freedoms last week. So let me just mention that today. Number two is a new relationship. A new relationship. He says, my brothers, you also died to the law through, through the body of Christ. Do you know there was only one reason why Jesus died on the cross? He died because of the law. Law demands payment. Remember what the law says? The wages of sin is death. So either you're going to die a death under the law, or you're going to die to the law and die a death under grace, and the outcomes are totally different, are they not? So Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 5 says that, um, uh, that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And so being under law is a bad thing, right? So why was Jesus under the law? Because Jesus is the only one who could keep the law perfectly. And so the Bible says that Jesus never sinned, whether in word or deed or any other way, that he was sinless son of God, which made him qualified to be the spotless lamb of God who would offer himself up in our place. So he was born under the law. He kept the law so that he could die in order to break the law's hold over our lives. So when we died, when he died, we died. And so Jesus kept it all perfectly. And everyone under the law will be judged by the law, the law that was written on our hearts. Because God cannot ignore the law, right? So when I was under the law, did I sin? Don't say nothing. Don't you say that. I sinned a lot. And uh, early on in life, by the way. So what did the law do? Condemn me. It says, I'm under the law. What, what would have happened to me had I died while under the law? Condemned by the law. Well, I would have had to spend eternity in hell because payment has to be made. So either I pay it or Jesus pays it for me. And so God in his holiness and in his righteousness, he cannot just wink at sin. He can't say, well, you know, your sin's no big deal. You didn't realize what you're doing. It's all okay. Uh, I know the world is sin. Uh, I'm just going to forgive everybody. All skate. It's all good now. It's just not the way it operates. It's not the way our laws operate, although they are changing in that direction a, a bit, but... Typically, that's not, you know, you go out and break the law, you get caught, you, you have to pay the penalty, you have to pay the price. 
And so God knew that humanity could not pay the law's demand, the law's punishment for sin. And so Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin and placed it upon himself. And Jesus came into the world to deliver us from the condemnation of the law. And he was born under law. He kept the law in every detail on our behalf as our representative, as our older brother. And he did it personally. And on the cross, he took our place, died as our representative, took our punishment for our sin. And then when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the payment of God's payment for man's sin. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you were justified in God's eyes, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was resurrected, you were resurrected to walk in what? Not law, but to walk in newness of life. Now, we're learning how to do that. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, like I didn't come out of that new marriage relationship all perfect. In fact, I'm still not there. Remember, this life is not about God getting you into perfection. It's about helping you make progress. You will not be completely perfected until you enter into heaven. That's when God will have completed the entire process of salvation. So um, Paul says, man, we, we died to sin. How, how can we live in it any longer? Now, this is why this is important. Because when you get to Romans chapter 8 and it says, one of the most beautiful statements Paul made, therefore the, those who are in Christ Jesus, what happens? Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If Satan comes along with a condemning voice and you're in Christ, what did he say? There's how much condemnation? None. I'm not married to the law. I'm married to Jesus. He forgave all my sins, past, present, and future. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. I've been raised up to walk a newness of life. The old is gone. The new has come. I am secure in relationship with Jesus. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And even when this body exits this world, I'm going to tell you when my soul and my spirit exits this body and enters into the presence of my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, even then God's not done with this body that is left behind, but will be resurrected and made new and reunited with my soul and body. That is God's eternal promise to me as a child of his. There's no condemnation. That's a marriage of grace. There's also a new purpose. He said, again, in, in verses um, in 4 and 5, the latter part of that, he says, we might belong to one another. He's raised us from the dead in order that we might be bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that it bore the fruit of, of death. And so before we got saved, the, the works of the flesh, he says, brings, brings death. Now, here's what, here's what I want you to understand. Um, I don't know how old you were when you got saved. I was 16 years old. And so uh, Satan had a lot of time to ingrain in my thought processes a lot of lie-based thinking. All right? And when you believe a lie long enough, you, you accept it as being truthful. 
And so the things that were said to me by other people, like you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything, I took that as being truthful. And so my, my brain processed that that's true, Greg. You, you are worthless. You, you're never going to amount to anything. And so every time I did something wrong, that tape recorder just kept going on and on and on. And, and so these were the, the deeds of my flesh and the old cravings of my body and the passions of my flesh is like, man, it's like, you know, it, when somebody offered me something that really wasn't good for me, but I, but I wanted it, right? I wanted to be authority. I wanted to be the king. I, I wanted to call the shots in my own life. And so I indulged in a lot of things that were very harmful to me and for me. And, and it just began to taint my body, my physical body, and it tainted my my mind, and it tainted my emotions. And like most of you, we were a wreck, right? Paul spent the whole first four chapters of the book of Romans to say, we're messed up, people. We're all messed up. Some of us might be messed up more than others, but we're all messed up. Now he's going to try to untangle all of that, and we have to learn. That's why Paul said you got to learn to, to work out what God's worked in you through Christ, and you got to learn to take off the old and put on the new. And when you learn to take what God has appropriated on your behalf and integrate it into your mind and your emotions and your will and your physical body, things begin to change. But it is a struggle. Think about somebody who who is a heroin addict, and they're trying to get off of heroin, and they've been on it for a long time, and it's, it's gripped their mind, it's gripped their emotions, it's gripped their, their will, and, and it's gripped their body. And so when they try to, to quit, let's say this person quits cold turkey, and a lot of things begin to happen about two or three days out, things like you know bone and muscle pain and insomnia and, and diarrhea and vomiting and it just shocks the system and this may go on for quite a long time there's a great deal of physical anguish and psychological struggle and let's say this person gets off of heroin what typically happens it's just a matter of time before they go back to it in fact, the average person has to go through rehab about five times before they actually get victory over that addiction. Why is that? Because the body, the body, the flesh, the body still has that, that sense of craving. And, and so give them a right circumstance or situation, and, and the body is just like, mm, you know, uh, really, uh, I'd like, I, I want some of that. I want some of that. It's just like any addiction. I don't care if it's to drugs or alcohol or porn or whatever it is. The body's just like, uh, crying out for it. And so the mind now, it's a psychological war. And if I had not learned how to take the, the mind of Christ and work that in my mind, then it's hard to bear this by myself. It's hard to do it alone, and the cravings are never far away. And even tr drug treatment experts are unanimous in their opinion. Treating the body to overcome physical dependence is only the beginning. The key to lifelong sobriety is treating the mind, because the mind is saying, why am I doing this? What is it that drew me to this in the first place? 
Is it because I, I felt I was no value? I felt I was not a person of worth? What, what was happening in my mind that drove me to things like drugs and alcohol? In my mind, I was, I was worthless. My, I, I didn't feel like my father wanted me. And, and you know, I didn't feel worthy. I felt worthless. I, I, I never felt like I measured up. I never felt like I fit in. And so I was looking for a group to fit in with. And that's what drew me into that relationship. And as the lie-based mind began to wrap its web around me and my emotions and my will, it was easy for me to gravitate towards that. And then once I pulled away from that and I was saved and I knew in my heart, this is not a good thing. I, I shouldn't keep doing this. And, but I, I'm like, Paul, I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going back to it. And I wish I wouldn't do it, but I find myself doing it. And it wasn't until God did a transformation in my mind, in my heart, and in my body that I was released from the grips of that drug or that alcohol. And so this is, this is the process we go through. And I don't know what it is for you. It may not be that. It might be something else. But I just want you to know that God wants you to bear fruit, a different kind of fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's a process because God's giving you a new purpose for life. God does think you're worthy. He thinks you're valuable. He has a calling upon your life. There's something he wants to do through you and, and, and that he could not do through anyone else. It's like God doesn't make cookie-cutter human beings any more than he made cookie-cutter snowflakes. Because God's got a unique stamp and calling upon your life that he wants to fulfill. And here's the next one, is a new motivation. He says... Um, in verse 6, um, but now, dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in a new way in the, in the spirit. That word serve doesn't describe a voluntary service of a hired worker who, who's able to refuse somebody. The word serve here is exclusively, it means a, a bond slave. It means that I'm coming to my master with a, with a newfound purpose and a newfound motivation, and I serve him not because I'm trying to appease God, not because I'm trying to earn his love, not because I'm trying to earn his acceptance. I have all those things. My motivation for serving God is purely out of love and gratitude for what God has done. And the focus of my heart and life with God now is not on rule keeping. The focus of my heart and life is now on relationship. Watch this. Because if rule thought process is still governing your life, you'll spend the bulk of your time trying to keep the rules, thinking that that is somehow appeasing to God, rather than going deeper in the relationship. God's looking for the depth of relationship. Everything else will take care of itself. I'll never forget Dr. Adrian Rogers teaching in, in uh, one of my classes in my doctoral program, and he's made this statement that I've, I've forever remembered. He said, if you will take care of your, the depth of your walk with Jesus, he'll take care of the depth of your life and your ministry that he wants to do through you. So what is the purpose of the law? Let me just hit these really quick because I ain't got much time. I told you, I know I, I'm, I'm not in pain right now, so I could go on forever, but... 
I'm not going to do that, right? I'm going to rattle these off pretty quick. Number one is the law reveals sin. Here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is, is, is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really is if the law had not said, do not covet. So sin reveal, or the law reveals sin, right? When I was saved, I thought everything I was doing was okay in God's eyes. But then I started reading the Bible, and God says, mm, this, this isn't okay. You really shouldn't be stealing, which got you that ride to the police department in Granville, Ohio. Really? Really? Uh, you really shouldn't be. And so now God is confronting my sins that I didn't know was sin. Listen, if, if, I, if I've never opened up the Bible, which I hadn't, until, you know, I started coming to church at age 15, I had no idea what the Bible said. I had no idea what God considered sin and not sin. Now, we all have a conscience. We all have a sense of right and wrong. But my sense of right and wrong may not be the same as your sense of right and wrong. But when we are confronted, listen, the word of God, the law is, has no power to change us. It can only diagnose the problem. See, I had an MRI on Friday, which is an incredible machine that can like look inside your body and, and give the doctors a clear diagnosis as to what's happening inside of you. But that MRI machine has no power or ability to heal what's wrong with me. And this is the way it is with the law. The law has no ability to change you or to help you. It can only say, this is what's wrong. Your help's over here. He's called the Holy Spirit. And we'll, we'll get into that and find out how he helps us. Number two, the law arouses sin. It arouses it. It says, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded to, by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire for apart from the law, the sin, that sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin sprang of life, to life and I, and I died. And so Paul is simply saying this, you know what? When, when somebody tells you, don't do that, what do you want to do? You want to do it. Exactly right. When the law says, do not, I'm doing it. I want that. I'm going there. It's like, well, my, my I didn't say I was always a bright kid, but uh, my friend and I lived across the street. We got a, a bow and arrow set with real arrows. And so his dad set up a target in the back, and, you know, he's like, what were the instructions? You only shoot at the target. You don't shoot birds. You don't shoot animals. You don't shoot anything but the target. Well, we got a little bored with that. So I thought to myself, I wonder if I can put an arrow through the back door window of your house. And I succeeded. And let's just say I didn't see my bow and arrow for a long, long, long time. And so Paul's thinking about coveting. He, he's thinking, you know what? I never realized I coveted things until God said, you shouldn't covet. I thought I was okay. Kept, kept the Ten Commandments, best of my ability. You know, I didn't have any idols, loved God, kept the Sabbath, honored my parents, didn't steal. Did, I, I didn't, you know, like kill anybody. And then he gets down to the, the law of coveting, which deals with an internal issue instead of an external issue. And he finds out, uh-oh, 
Uh, yeah. So this coveting thing, like, do, does, does coveting arouse us? We call it social media, marketing, advertising, impulse buying, right? So you get on social media. Some I mean, you get on Facebook and you, you look at the, you know, you're looking at pictures of uh, people you are friends with and you're like, wow, they, they lost 50 pounds. They look really skinny. Oh, I hate you. Uh, yeah. uh, look at her husband. That, that dude, he's got a six pack. My husband's got a keg. I don't understand it. I, I need a new husband, right? So we look at things and we're looking at people's highlight reels and we start coveting what they have. And what happens when you start coveting what people have? You start comparing yourself. And when you compare yourself, you are no longer content. And when you're no longer content, you're no longer grateful for what you have. And so, you know, the law arouses this within us. The law, number, number three, it commands and condemns and judges us. In verse 10, he says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. And so, how many of you have ever felt guilty for doing something wrong? Anybody? How many of you have never felt guilty in your life? You're a sociopath, okay? That's, they, have a ta- they have a label for that. It's an illness. And so when you violate the law, you know, we tend to feel guilty at times. And because of what? Because the law judges us. And, and um, so we feel defeated. We feel depressed. I blew it. And law beats us up. And grace builds us up. And law shows you what you've done wrong. And grace shows you what Jesus has done to help make you right. And so Paul, again, he was confronted with that in his own life. And he says, man, I, 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 I got to deal with this. I got to deal with this coveting heart. Number four, the law shows the character of God. The, the law shows the character of God. So uh, verse 12, so then the law is holy and, and command, his commandment is holy, righteous, and, and good. Here's, a, I just want to say one thing about that. Listen, God gives us the law, that is, the principles of God's word, the moral code of God's word. God does it for our protection, not for our punishment. It's a big difference. So God wants to protect you from future harm. He's not there to punish you. I'll give you one quick example. You know, um, let's take casual sex. You know, the Bible says that sex is to be between a, a man and a wife. Why, why did God set that up? It was because he wants to punish you and, get, you know, rob you of your, your fun? No, because, and I grew up in the era in the 60s, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Um, and during sex, your body releases a, a hormone, oxytocin, which makes you subconsciously bond to your partner. And so when you have multiple sexual partners, you're not just bonding in body, you're bonding, the Bible says, in soul, which means over time you lose trust, you lose intimacy, you lose empathy, and, and not to mention the comparison aspect. So what's God protecting me from? So that when you finally attach yourself to somebody that you're going to spend the rest of your life with in marriage... Guess what happens in the bedroom? You bring in all those other partners from the past because you've got a memory. And that memory is tied to a very strong, passionate uh, experience. So now all of a sudden there can be comparison and, and the mind can go back to all the other people you slept with and you can name names and the place and the time and how you experienced it and what it was like and, and all of this. See, God's not just like, oh, let me ruin all your fun. He's trying to protect us. 
not punish us. Number five, the law shows us the sinfulness of sin. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might recognize us a sin, produced death in me through that what was good. And so through the commandment, sin might become utterly, utterly sinful. So what is Paul saying to us in all of this? He's saying this, following the law makes for a bad marriage, but following Christ makes for a great marriage. So the question is, how do you enter into that marriage? So let me close with this. When you got married, those of you who were married, what did you do on that day of marriage? You, you stood before God and your friends and family, and you made vows to one another. And you entered into this covenant relationship between yourself, your spouse, and God himself. And, and, and you entered into this, this relationship, and all of a sudden, everything is, is different. Everything is, is, is changing. And in that covenant relationship... That was acknowledged by God, and um, you, you, the two became one, right? The two became one. And now, you know, many, many women, you, you take the last name of your husband, you, there's, there is a change in relationship. And so it's a sacred relationship. It's a sacred moment in time. And so when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're entering into a, a sacred relationship with him. It's like a, a relationship of marriage. You are entering into a new covenant relationship with Christ. And he, and he fundamentally changes you from the inside out. And he says, these are some things that are positionally true about you. And I know you may not be living it out practically yet, but I'm telling you, I can take what's positional and make it practical if you'll just walk with me, if you'll just, if you'll just let me help you. And because I want you to know, listen, you're no longer under the law. You are living under grace. This is a grace relationship. It's a love relationship. It's a relationship of value and worth in my eyes. And I will be patient with you. And I will be kind with you. And I will be gentle with you. Which is why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's not heavy. It's not burdensome. He says, I, I'm for you. I'm not against you. And I want you to be the best possible person you can absolutely be. And when you stumble and you fall, I will pick you back up. I will love you. I will embrace you. I will help you take your next step because that is what I have come to do for you. And by the way, I have changed your name. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint of God. Amen. Now let's live it out. And let me show you how. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. But you can win this fight. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you. Um, and I pray right now that the Holy Spirit would, would come and awaken hearts and minds. That, Lord, you would give us a new desire a new natures to, to walk after you, to follow you. And God, as we're living in this world, we, we know that you don't just keep adding law after law and so that we feel the pressure of trying to always live up and always um, measure up. But Lord, we do feel the burden and the frustration of not being able, like Paul said, to do what we want to do. 
what we've been created to do and what we've been created to be. So please remind us that apart from grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, all we have is law. And more law, which just results in less freedom and more restriction and more condemnation and fear and less of joy in, in life. So Jesus, thank you so, so much that you satisfied the demands of the law, that you died to pay our debt to the law for the wages of sin we know is death. And that, Lord Jesus, you rose from the grave and you conquered Satan, you conquered sin and death, and you held the wrath of God in your hands. It was, it was leveled against you, and you withstood it on our behalf. You satisfied the demands of the law, and Jesus, thank you that you are now ruling and reigning from your throne in heaven, and that you are alive and well. And so the Bible says that we are in new relationship. We are new creations in you, that we've died with you and been buried, and we've been resurrected with you, and that now we can approach your throne of grace with boldness in our time of need. And God, it is a time of need. So we thank you that our Lord and Savior rules over everyone and everything, and all that flows from his throne is just never-ending provision of grace. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, bring that grace down to us now. God, would you pre please bring salvation to those who need to enter into relationship with Jesus? Would you open up their hearts to love Jesus, to receive him, to trust him, to follow him, and to start experiencing firsthand this beautiful, beautiful marriage of grace. Lord, we pray that our hearts yearn for that, for those around us who do not possess it. But we who do, Father, we thank you. Open up our eyes to see the truth about ourselves, the truth about how you view us, so that we can combat our enemy who only seeks to condemn. So thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who enables us to walk in victory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand. We're going to close out in a time of singing, and as always, uh, we encourage you, invite you, if you'd like to come to the altar and pray, please feel free to do so. If you've never put your hope, your trust, and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of your life, then I invite you to do that this morning. You may have questions about that, and I'm here at the front. Please just come and see me, and I'd love to talk to you and to answer any questions you may have. I just want you to know that when you leave out of here, you're either in a good marriage or you're in a bad marriage. You're either under the law or you're under Christ. And so God wants you to be under Jesus where grace rules and reigns. It's a relationship that's not driven by rules, but it's a relationship that's driven by pure love. Let's sing about it.